Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 11, Episode 6, The Fall of the Ming Dynasty. At the end of last season, the Ming Dynasty was starting to show worrying signs of instability, weakness, and regional splintering. The various rebellions which cropped up around China toward the close of the 1500s were proving increasingly difficult for the ruling government to quell, and the Japanese invasions of Korea also proved costly to repel. Such military ventures would be a considerable strain on the finances of even a stable, well-managed nation, but China under the Ming Dynasty at the close of the 1500s was neither stable nor well-managed. Emperor Wan Li had initially tackled civic, military, and social problems with the gusto of a true Confucian sovereign, but quickly grew exhausted with the constant demands and bickering of his officials. Gradually, he withdrew and left matters in the hands of eunuch servants, who acted as his intermediaries. Because the emperor wasn't exactly checking up on their activities, these eunuchs came to wield significant power and became a source of corruption. Because they had no children of their own, they appointed their nephews and other relatives to positions of power within the Ming court, for which said relatives were generally unqualified. Eunuch power grabs were hardly a new phenomenon in Chinese history, but combined with expensive military campaigns, corruption in the tax collectors, a silver-based tax system which alienated rural farmers, and widespread famine, the Ming government was transformed into a leaky dam which threatened to burst with the slightest increase in pressure. Emperor Wan Li's reign technically lasted through 1620, but within the northern reaches of China's domain, trouble was brewing for the beleaguered Ming dynasty. The region of Manchuria, which lies to the north of the Korean peninsula and to the northeast of China proper, had long been an area of contention. The Ming dynasty kept the region in check by playing the various tribes of its native inhabitants against one another. One of the most populous of these ethnic groups was the Jurchen people, who were classified by Ming officials into three broad groups depending on their level of agriculture, Mongol influence, and Chinese influence. In the late 1500s, a Jurchen warrior named Nurhachi came into the service of a Ming general named Li Chengliang, who was the regional commander of Liaodong province, which is located in southern Manchuria. Nurhachi's grandfather was a Jurchen leader, and in 1582 both his grandfather and father were killed as part of an intrigue by a rival Jurchen leader. This rival leader, like Nurhachi's grandfather, was also an official vassal of the Ming dynasty, which created a potential political problem for the Ming leaders. Nurhachi vowed revenge, but the Ming dynasty continually tried to convince him to accept half-measures and compromises instead, but protected the life of his enemy. Eventually, his enemy fell into the hands of Li Chengliang, who readily gave him over to Nurhachi, who immediately beheaded him. By this point, the young Jurchen leader had already gathered a significant following from his tribe, who had accepted his leadership after the death of his grandfather. While seeking revenge against his enemy chieftain, Nurhachi also embarked on a campaign of Jurchen unification. By 1590, one of the three broad groups of Jurchens recognized by the Ming dynasty, the Jinzhou Jurchens, had submitted to Nurhachi's rule. 
Throughout the 1590s, he continued to act as an agent of the Ming Dynasty and had received official recognition for his efforts via promotions and the granting of flattering titles. He then used these titles to claim greater authority over his fellow Jurchens, many of whom chose to recognize him as their chieftain as a result. Though primarily a military leader, Nurhachi also possessed an appreciation for learning and scholarship. In his youth, he had read several classical Chinese texts about tactics and strategies and desired for the Jurchens to have a native written language. Previous to this, the learned among them largely used Jurchen script, which was based on Khitan script, which was based on written Chinese. In 1599, he gave two of his translators the monumental task of creating an alphabet specifically meant for the Jurchen people. They drew heavily from Mongol script and created the Manchu alphabet, which is written from top to bottom in a flowing calligraphic style. By 1601, the number of troops at Nurhachi's disposal had swelled so large that he had to reorganize his army. While previously it had been composed of large numbers of dozen-man platoons working in concert, he transformed it into 300-man companies. Five companies made a division, and ten divisions were known as a banner. Initially, there were four banners, but by 1615, Nurhachi's followers had grown so large thanks to conquest, submission, and defection that he needed to double the number of banners to eight. By 1615, Nurhachi had become one of the most influential military leaders in Manchuria and commanded the respect and attention of its surrounding regions. The next year, 1616, he declared himself Khan of a new dynasty, which he named the Jin Dynasty, but which historians refer to as the later Jin dynasty, to avoid confusing it with the early Jin dynasty of the 11 and 1200s. Throughout the early 1600s, Ming dynasty officials continually fretted that Nurhachi was consolidating too much power and worried that he might rebel. His declaring a new dynasty was an obviously provocative move, but the Ming administrators had practically no way of bringing him to heel. His forces were not purely Jurchen, but had attracted many other Manchurian peoples to his cause, and more than a few Han soldiers had left their posts to join with the new Jin dynasty. In 1618, Nurhachi's ambitions became clear when he issued a document listing seven grievances which he had against the Ming dynasty, chief among them that they had facilitated the deaths of his father and grandfather. He demanded a large payment from the Ming dynasty for these many grievances, which they naturally refused. Nurhachi proceeded to make war against the Ming, first attacking the city of Fushun. This particular fortified city was one of 18 fortresses originally constructed on the orders of Emperor Hongwu to help the Ming dynasty hold Liaodong province and expand its influence over the rest of Manchuria. However, the corruption of the late Ming dynasty was Fushun's undoing, for while on paper there were many thousands of soldiers serving there, in reality there were far fewer defenders. Shortly after the assault on Fushun began, the garrison leaders surrendered on the condition of safety for the residents and the soldiers under their command. The commanding general of Fushun, Li Yongfang, officially defected to the later Jin dynasty and was given a granddaughter of Nurhachi as a wife he would certainly not be the last Ming official to switch his allegiance to Nurhachi. The later Jin dynasty's army was true to its word and did not put Fushun to the sword. When a Ming army in the area attempted to retake the city in a counterattack, the defenders mounted a sortie which drove the would-be assault force into a massive chaotic rout. 
The Ming Dynasty's decline and fall was caused by a variety of factors including economic turmoil, unpopular taxation, and corruption in the higher rungs of government, but one of the most critical factors was the general neglect of the military establishment. The Ming government had long had a difficult relationship with its military leaders, frequently ousting them in political purges or executing them for even minor setbacks at the battlefront. The administrators had previously prevented Ming generals from gaining too much influence over their armies by rotating them regularly after two years or less. However, this practice fell into disuse as eunuchs took over the responsibilities of Emperor Wan Li, and many generals were kept in place for a dozen years or more, allowing them to build a personal rapport with their officers and a father-like status among the rank and file. During previous decades, a Ming general asking his army to betray the central government would have had a very difficult time succeeding. His army would barely know him, and people don't like being executed as traitors, so why would they follow him on some foolhardy vendetta? However, as rotations fell into disuse and the bonds between the foot soldiers and their great general developed over time, the army was more inclined to trust their high commander, even if he asked them to betray the emperor. It certainly didn't help that many Ming armies had seen their rations reduced and their salaries arrive late on a regular basis. While Nurhachi had unified the Jurchens of Manchuria and organized them into an effective national army for his later Jin dynasty, the ambitions of his successors would have fallen flat without the large-scale defections of many Ming generals, who felt unappreciated, neglected, and fed up all around with serving a government whom they increasingly viewed as corrupt, petty, and unworthy of the mandate of heaven. In fact, if the Ming government had been more attentive to its military establishment in the late 1500s and early 1600s, the later Jin dynasty may have been defeated completely in the mid-1620s. Nurhachi continued to meet largely with success on the battlefield after the Battle of Fushun in 1618. In 1621, he managed to capture Liaoyang, the former capital of the older Jin dynasty, and named it the capital of his own administration. In 1625, however, his forces captured the city of Shenyang, and it was made the new capital. Eventually, the capital would be moved again, but Shenyang would continue to enjoy its status as a sort of secondary capital and a spiritual center of the new dynasty. By 1626, after Nurhachi's campaign successfully captured many more fortified cities and defeated many Ming armies in the process, the Ming administration called for a general withdrawal of armed forces from Liaoning province. The idea was to fortify defenses of the Great Wall at Shanghai Pass, where any future Jurchen invasions were likely to attempt capture. However, not every field commander agreed with this policy, and a general named Yuan Chonghuan chose to stay behind with a force of 20,000 and defend Ningyuan City. He ordered everything outside the city walls to be burned to deny supply to the forthcoming Jin army, and mounted European cannons on the city's parapets to greet his enemies. Nurhachi brought an army of around 130,000, we believe, to seize Ningyuan just as he had done to many other fortified Ming cities throughout Manchuria. He wrote to General Yuan and encouraged him to surrender, but the general replied that he and his commanders, indeed his entire army, were ready to fight to the death. Dying, however, was hardly plan A for the clever General Yuan. The later Jin army attempted to use armored siege carts to tempt the defenders into sallying out of the city so that their cavalry could annihilate them. 
However, there was no need to send soldiers against the siege carts thanks to the cannons, which obliterated the contraptions before they reached the walls. As the siege progressed over the course of about a week, Nurhachi's army had nothing to show for their efforts but casualties. The cannon bombardment from the defenders, as well as other clever uses of gunpowder weaponry, devastated the besiegers, and even Nurhachi himself was gravely wounded. He died two days after withdrawing from the battle, and the rest of his troops withdrew from Ningyuan shortly thereafter. While the emergence of a competing dynasty in Manchuria was certainly a blow to the Ming government's ego, it was by no means a fatal blow to their state. Nurhachi's eighth son, Hong Taiji, won the struggle of succession and quickly consolidated power and was recognized as the new Khan of the later Jin dynasty. However, officials in China took notice of General Yuan Chongyuan's impressive defense of Ningyuan, and in 1628 the newly ascended Emperor Chongzhen appointed him as field marshal for the northeast regions. The new Khan of the later Jin dynasty, meanwhile, intended to expand on his late father's conquests. After a failed attempt at retaking cities in Liaoning which had been reconquered by the Ming, he saw that his army needed fresh supply and a less able opponent. He dispatched several loyal generals to make war against the kingdom of Chosan. We will discuss this event in greater detail two episodes from now, but for the moment it is enough to know that the fighting did not go well for the Koreans, still recovering from the destructive Japanese invasions three decades before, and that later Jin successes on the peninsula convinced King Injo of Chosan to abandon their tributary status with the Ming dynasty and become tributaries of the later Jin instead. General Yuan Chonghuan, meanwhile, gathered his forces and prepared to defend from another incursion, believing that the enemy would attempt to seize Shanghai Pass in order to break through the Great Wall. In the winter of 1629, however, Hong Taiji led his army, which may have numbered 200,000 and included many Mongol warriors along with Manchurians and Han defectors, to Longjing Pass and Da'an Pass far to the west instead. They easily broke through these areas of the Great Wall and proceeded toward the Ming capital of Beijing, looting, pillaging, and raiding as they went. As soon as he received word of the later Qin army's march, General Yuan Chonghuan rushed to defend the capital with his army. Hong Taiji's forces captured many cities in the vicinity, and desperate battles ensued as the Ming armies of Yuan Chonghuan and his fellow generals sought to repel the invaders. After a few minor Ming victories, the bulk of the later Jin army returned to their capital of Shenyang, initially leaving garrisons in the cities they had taken. Within a few months, those cities had been abandoned or retaken by the Ming dynasty, who had been shaken to the core by the presence of a rival dynasty's army just outside their capital. Court officials, eager to separate the new emperor from his chosen champion, came to the conclusion that Yuan Chonghuan was to blame for the near disaster outside of Beijing. Some were emboldened to accuse him of secretly conspiring with Hong Taiji and the later Qin dynasty, regardless of the fact that Chonghuan had just saved the empire by defending its capital, sometimes throwing himself into the fighting personally. In the end, Emperor Chongzhen was convinced by his officials that an example needed to be made. Yuan Chonghuan was tried and found guilty of colluding with the enemy and sentenced to Lingqi, an excruciating execution in which the victim is given a series of shallow cuts on their body until they are dead. Although it is sometimes theatrically called death by a thousand cuts, the term Ling Chi actually means slow slicing. 
The execution of Yuan Chongwan was part of a general trend throughout the Ming Dynasty's history. The officials and administrators in the empire's upper echelons feared the influence which powerful military leaders might wield, and when a particular officer became known for their heroic battlefield efforts, it could be the beginning of the poor man's misfortunes. You may recall how Qi Jiguang was a lauded hero throughout China until enemies of his late political patron came into power and arranged for his summary dismissal and disbarment from future employment in the military. Executing generals who had failed or who had disobeyed the sovereign was a regular event in the Ming Dynasty, but this inevitably led to an embittered officer corps who all wondered whether their own mistakes might someday cost them their lives. During the regular course of rotating generals to different divisions around the nation every few years, this bitterness had no chance to metastasize, but because the administration had been lax about that rotation, they would soon find that the generals commanded personally loyal troops who were willing to take their general's cause as their own. While supplying his growing armed forces for future campaigns was among Hong Taiji's top concerns, he did not intend on freezing the Han Chinese out of government opportunities the way that previous non-Han dynasties had sometimes done. He instituted a civil service exam specifically to attract scholarly Han officials and grow his administration with their assistance and advice. In the ensuing decades, Hong Taiji continued his courtship of disgruntled Ming generals as well. Rather than forcing these officials and generals to accept all of the Jurchen ways and customs, he desired that they should embody a sort of synthesis between Han and Manchu. It was Hong Taiji himself who coined the term Manchu and used it in favor of Jurchen. The reasons for this are not entirely clear, but it is probable that he wanted to distance his people from the label of Jurchen, who were known to have been vassals and subjects of the Ming dynasty. And Manchu was not the final new name which he would coin, for in 1636 he discarded the dynastic name of Jin and in its place adopted the name Qing, which is often translated as clear or pure. By 1636, the fortunes of the Ming had declined significantly in the face of not only aggression from their northern neighbors, but dissension in their own domains. Rebellions broke out around the nation, armies defected to the newly minted Qing dynasty, and the corruption problem which had been fiscally weakening the Ming dynasty for many decades continued relatively unabated. Meanwhile, the Qing dynasty expanded its reach by pushing into Mongolia to their west and Siberia to their north. Chosan made a valiant attempt at sovereign independence in 1636, but the Qing won the ensuing struggle, and Chosan continued paying tributary taxes to their northern neighbor. A series of massive peasant rebellions against the Ming dynasty began fomenting around 1628 and would continue for decades. While the government's policies towards the peasantry were oppressive and unpleasant, the famines, natural disasters, and plagues that ensued nearly unchecked throughout the early 1600s did little to engender good feelings between Chinese commoners and their leaders. A particularly virulent strain of Yersinia pestis, the bacteria which caused the Black Death throughout Europe in earlier centuries, began spreading among the Chinese population in 1633, striking first in the Shangxi region, which houses the capital, Beijing. By the early 1640s, the sickness had entered the capital and swiftly infected much of the urban population. By the time it had run its course, it is believed to have killed over 200,000 people. 
In February of 1644, a massive peasant army, which was part of a years-long rebellion that killed many Ming officials and governors throughout northern China and captured many cities in the vicinity, arrived at Beijing in force. It is possible that this peasant army numbered above one million people, but it is impossible to know for certain. In any case, the capital was besieged by an unwashed horde, while its defenders were largely incapacitated by the plague. Emperor Chongzhen sent out a desperate call to arms offering high offices and coveted titles to any generals who brought their armies to relieve the siege. The fact that such enticements were necessary shows just how desperate the situation had become. The leader of this peasant rebellion was a commoner named Li Zicheng, who was said to have advocated equal distribution of land and abolishing the burdensome taxes which had impoverished peasant cultivators. Two years before they arrived at the walls of Beijing, his peasant army had besieged Kaifeng. The defenders attempted to strategically break the dikes of the nearby Yellow River so that the water would flood the assaulting army and save the city. Li Zicheng got word of this tactic, however, and ordered his troops to likewise break dikes along the Yellow River, which would direct its massive waters toward Kaifeng instead. In the end, Li Zicheng's army won, and Kaifeng was completely surrounded by massive floodwaters, destroying priceless historical treasures and documents, and causing the deaths of around 300,000 people, over three-quarters of Kaifeng's population. After three days of waiting for relief, a eunuch ordered Beijing's gates to be opened and the army allowed inside. Emperor Chongzhen, certain that he would face a much darker fate at the hands of this army, hanged himself from a tree within the inner sanctum of Beijing known as the Forbidden City. The peasant army looted and burned the city with abandon, and Li Zicheng declared himself the first emperor of the Shun dynasty. Neither his reign nor his dynasty would last long. A Ming general named Wu Songwei, who had been defending what few imperial holdings remained north of the Great Wall, brought his army to relieve Beijing in late April, not knowing that the city had already fallen. He learned of the fall of Beijing en route, and instead ordered his men to fortify Shanghai Pass, the easternmost gatehouse along the Great Wall, and wrote to the Qing dynasty requesting their assistance in ousting the rebels who were ravaging Beijing and restoring the Ming dynasty. The previous year, 1643, Hong Taiji had died and a ruling council of princes briefly formed before his five-year-old son was named the new emperor of the Qing. The real power lay with a man named Dorgon, a brother of Hong Taiji who was an impressively competent general who had led his banner army against many Mongol factions and gained their submission and the annexation of their land. In 1644, Dorgon had already been preparing for yet another Qing army foray into northern China, so when Wu Songwei wrote to him asking for assistance, he was only too happy to oblige, on one condition. The Ming dynasty would not be restored, and Wu Songwei would be expected to swear fealty to the Qing. Wu Songwei, having basically no other options, accepted this proposal. Dorgon arrived with his army in late May of 1644, after Wu Songwei had already successfully defended against attempted assaults by rebel forces in the area. Dorgon accepted Songwei's official surrender, and the two hatched a plan to defeat Li Zicheng's Shun Dynasty army and liberate Beijing. On May 27, 1644, Wu Songwei's warriors engaged with the Shun army, viciously assaulting their front ranks as the vanguard. Around midday after hours of fighting, the Qing army flanked the Shun force and successfully took them by surprise, scattering the rebels and clearing the path to Beijing. 
Dorgon and his army entered Beijing, reportedly to the surprise of the Ming official who greeted him believing that Wu Songwei had saved the day and was preparing to restore Ming rule. The child emperor of the Qing dynasty entered the capital soon after, and those previously loyal to the Ming dynasty were made to submit to the new bosses. By capturing Beijing, the capital of China since 1272, the Qing dynasty claimed to have gained the mandate of heaven to rule the rest of the nation. Those loyal to the Ming dynasty and family members of the late emperor did not all lay down their arms and submit after Beijing was taken by the Qing. A long road lay ahead for China's new ruling house, and they had every intention of traveling it, defeating Ming loyalists and annexing former Ming domains on the way. Next time we will continue discussing the developments in China during the 1600s as the Qing dynasty sought to make their claim to the Mandate of Heaven real through conquest, reform, and cultural synthesis. I will be taking a few weeks off to enjoy the holiday season with my family, but regular episodes will resume on Monday, January 8th. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. 